0: So I want to invite you to take your Bibles and to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And hopefully uh, you've seen the handout. A couple of brothers are passing those out. And, uh, you know, Pastor Josh warned me. He said, if you give folks a handout and then you don't do it next time, they're going to come after you. So I don't want anybody here to come after me, because I'm slow, and you'll catch me. So I made sure that we had a handout. So let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we're going to talk about the idea, what if Christ had not been raised? But let's begin first with prayer. Father, we are so incredibly grateful for all the ways that you're moving in our church. Ways that are often very evident to us. We, we see the fruit of that with lives being changed and, and people who are here on Sundays. And, and, and we're especially cognizant of that on a high attendance day like Easter. And so we're thankful for all the ways that we see the evidence of how you're moving. But Lord, we know that there are many ways that you're moving that we don't see right now. Maybe they're, they're even totally imperceptible, but your spirit's still at work. And long term, we're going to see the fruit of that. And lives that are transformed and, and families that are blessed and lost people who are reached. And we may not know about some of that fruit until eternity, but we're thankful, Lord, that you're at work now and that you're the king. And Lord, we're thankful that Jesus is the risen king and that we had the opportunity on Sunday to celebrate his resurrection. And and Lord, we're going to do that again tonight. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work among us this evening in this place Through these words that he inspired, we pray that he would help us to rightly understand them and apply them to our lives for your glory. And we look forward to seeing what you do in our lives through your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to take a moment and read verses 12 through 20. That's what we're going to focus on tonight. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. How many of you remember back in the 1980s and the 1990s, the Jesus Seminar. Does anybody know what I'm talking about whenever I say the Jesus Seminar? I can remember uh, hearing about the Jesus Seminar at that time, and then later in seminary, I can remember studying the Jesus Seminar. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you may not know the words Jesus Seminar, but you probably know their work. The Jesus Seminar... Something's talking up here. Oh, okay, I thought it was back here. It sounded like it was coming from the keyboard. <laughs> I was having flashbacks. Do you all remember the light that was mooing a few weeks ago in the early service for some of you? I was afraid that we had a keyboard that was demon-possessed back here. I didn't know what we were going to do. And I'm not a Pentecostal, so I get nervous about stuff like that. <laughs> so the Jesus Seminar, if you don't know that terminology, you probably know their work. Uh, In the 1980s and 1990s, a number of the leading Bible scholars as the world would kind of think about Bible scholars we're gathering together several times a year as the Jesus Seminar. Uh, these are the type of men and women who teach at places uh, like Harvard and Princeton and Yale and some of the leading research universities. And uh, none of these individuals would consider themselves to be evangelical Christians, or none of them would use language like conservative or Bible-believing Uh, to describe their beliefs. Uh, None of them were even uh, non-evangelicals like uh, traditional Catholics. They just weren't conservative-type Christians who took the Scripture seriously. And what they were most famous about is they would come together and they would vote on what they thought was true about Jesus that was not in the Bible. Now, you caught that, right? What's true about Jesus that's not in the Bible. What they would say is, we have to be careful that we separate the real Jesus of history from the Christ of faith. And what they meant by that is, we want to know who the real Jesus was, who walked around in the first century and was an itinerant preacher, kind of a guru, who gathered this following. We want to know about that guy, not all that stuff that's in the Bible about miracles and about exorcisms and about I am the way and the truth and the life and nobody comes to the Father except by me. And they would get together and they would go line by line through scripture and they would vote. We think Jesus really said that. Or there's no way the real Jesus said that. That's that's absurd. Or sometimes they'd say, maybe he said that. That's possible. Now you can maybe predict the way this would go. These liberal Bible scholars would get together and you know what they found out? Almost everything that Jesus said about loving your neighbor, doing good, taking care of people, the least of these, he probably said all that stuff. But he didn't perform miracles. And he didn't cast out demons And he didn't talk about how he was the only pathway to the Father. And he didn't talk about anything exclusive or anything that would turn anyone off. And uh, you would see the fruit of the Jesus Seminar in things like uh, Discovery Channel specials about who is the real Jesus. Or A&E specials about who is the real Jesus. Or Time Magazine or Newsweek once or twice a year, often around Christmas and Easter you know, who was Jesus or what really happened in Bethlehem or what really happened at, uh, at Calvary. You remember whenever we used to see those sorts of things? You'd go to the grocery store and, and whatnot. Those were the scholars that were writing those articles or being interviewed or those were the scholars that those documentaries on the History Channel would, uh, would be interviewing whenever they would be talking about the life of Christ. Now, here's the interesting thing for our purposes As best as I can tell, those couple hundred scholars, on paper, if you're looking at a resume, the leading scholars writing the books, talking on the documentaries, teaching at the Ivy League schools, not a one of those men or women believed that Jesus really died and really came back to life. They didn't even debate it. And they had all these different theories about what happened. But Pastor Josh referenced some of them uh, this past Sunday. You may remember this. Uh, you know, did Jesus swoon? He appeared to die, but he didn't really die. Or was it some sort of hoax? All these disciples were in on the hoax. Or did they go to the wrong tomb? That was his favorite. All these people wake up, they go to the wrong place. It was a bummer of a Sunday for them. Wrong tomb. They missed him. My personal favorite, mass hypnosis. I'm dead serious. Men and women teaching at Ivy League schools, research one universities, it was a a mass hypnosis. They deluded themselves into thinking that Jesus had rose from the dead. All of that's interesting, maybe even a little bit ridiculous. But here was the most common thing that those folks said, and it might be the most dangerous So imagine if you're an 18, 19, 20-year-old student, you're at a university, you're taking a Bible class or a religion class, and your professor says something like this, we know from science that dead people can't come back to life. None of us have ever seen a dead person come back to life that was a an old-fashioned sort more superstitious worldview when people believed in magic and things that went bump in the night but that doesn't mean Easter doesn't matter because what happened at Easter is the spirit of Jesus and his teachings was resurrected in the hearts of his followers and they went out sharing that good news that Jesus says we should love God and we should love neighbor and and we should make a difference in the world around us and, and we glorify the divine whenever we do that. Can you see just how sneaky that is to say that sort of thing? And how much less ridiculous that sounds than mass hypnosis or going to the wrong tomb. Or how much more plausible, even pious that sounds than there was some sort of hoax that they were all involved in or whatever. That was the sort of thing that those leading scholars were teaching. Now, here's the thing. I think we should be very, very careful as believers to not go around making pronouncements about uh, who's not really a Christian, if someone claims to be a follower of the Lord. I think we can say things like, I'm not sure they're a Christian. I think we can say things like, I'm worried about whether that person might be a Christian or not. But as a general rule, if someone says they're a Christian, you know, it's just not polite to say, he's not really a Christian. But when we're talking about people who are Bible teachers and ministers, and theologians who believed that there was still a body in a tomb in Palestine somewhere. I don't care how many degrees they have. I don't care how many books they've written, how many interviews they've given. You can't be a Christian and believe that. And that's the sort of thing that we see in the passage that we're looking at tonight if you believe that there's a body in a tomb somewhere in Palestine that decayed just like every other body decays, you're not a Christian in the way that the Bible defines Christianity. So our theme tonight, what if Christ has not been raised? The resurrection of Jesus is arguably the central truth of Christianity. It's not the only truth. But as Josh reminded us on Sunday, it's the truth that all the other truths hinge upon. Does that make sense? It's that important to what it means to be a Christian. Unfortunately, there are lots of people who monkey around with this truth in one way or another. And it's not just the Jesus Seminar way. I mean, there are people like that, skeptics, whether they're scholarly skeptics or whether they're uh, just your neighbor who has doubts about Christianity. There are skeptics who reject the resurrection outright. They say, dead people don't come back to life. Why would we believe that? There must be, either it's just a fable or there must be some spiritual truth underneath that tradition. It's common for skeptics to say things like that. Or theological liberals Maybe they're not outright skeptics, but theological liberals redefine the resurrection. That whole idea that the spirit of Jesus was raised in the hearts of his followers who go on spreading his message, and that sounds so pious. It's piously false, piously damnable even. It's not true Christianity. But I don't think Most folks who are regularly attending churches that that, that believe the scriptures struggle with rejection or redefinition. I'm sure there are some, but there's not many. But there's this third category. Lazy Christians rubber stamp the resurrection. Here's what I mean by that. They don't reject it. And they don't even redefine it. They really believe that Jesus was dead and that he rose after being dead for part of three days and he came back to life. And they believe that. They might even sing about that and be excited about that sometimes. But they tend to accept it as just kind of an abstract truth rather than capital T truth that changes everything, that radically transforms us and that changes the world, or maybe we could say it this way, it's more like a doctrinal box that they check rather than a precious truth that is one of the greatest truths in the world, a life-transforming, world-transforming truth. Sometimes we can become so familiar with these precious truths that we start to take them for granted. And we forget just how miraculous and wonderful and life-changing and revolutionary that they are. And God forbid that we should do that with the resurrection. And so tonight, what I want us to do is really zero in on these verses and, and walk through them together and think about what would be true if Jesus had not been raised from the dead what would life be like if there was still a body somewhere in a tomb in Palestine? Now, I want to admit up front that I am not nearly clever enough to come up with this type of question about the text by myself. So I want to give credit where credit's due. Years ago, I heard the, uh, the famous Baptist preacher, John Piper, say something like this. And, uh, and, and, and he did a talk that, that was similarly titled and said some of these things. But to quote another famous Baptist preacher, Adrian Rogers, though I have milked the Piper cow a little bit, I have churned my own butter. <laughs> this is mine. I've thought about it. I've prayed about it. I shamelessly borrowed the idea, but uh, but this is not plagiarism. But I just want you to know that. I'm a teacher. I've got to tell you, I didn't plagiarize. When people plagiarize, I fail them. So let's begin a little bit by stating the issue. Verses 12 and 13 really set up this discussion. Let's read it again together. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So Paul, who's writing this, and all of the other apostles affirm the resurrection of the dead. Not just Jesus' resurrection, but the resurrection of the dead. The idea that at the end of human history... The souls of the dead will be reunited with the bodies of the dead. You know what I'm talking about? They all believed that. Paul believed that. That's the bigger picture of what he's talking about in this passage. Now, this is not a uniquely Christian idea. And what I mean by that is the New Testament isn't the first appearance of this idea. There are a number of references in the Old Testament to the resurrection of the dead. And most Jews also believed this truth, even before the time of Christ. Let me just give you three examples. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Or Isaiah. Isaiah twenty six nineteen Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Or Psalm seventy one twenty. The whole Psalm is about the resurrection of the dead, but probably the best known passages or verses chapter twenty of Psalm seventy one. You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. What those Jews before the time of Christ believed is that there was a future not just for our invisible souls, but there was a future for our physical bodies. So, this is not an idea that the apostles invent. As Jewish followers of Jesus, they're bringing that mainstream Jewish idea into the early Christian faith. Now, here's your pop quiz tonight. I said most of the first century Jews believed in the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body at the end of the age. But does anybody know who were the Jews who didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead? It was the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the theological liberals of that day. The Pharisees, this is a little bit simplistic, the Pharisees were kind of like the fundamentalists. They believed a lot of great truth and they added a few extra rules. The Sadducees were like the liberals of the day. They believed some truths, but they redefined and rejected and spiritualized other truths. And one of those truths that they rejected was the idea that there would be a resurrection of the body at the last day. But the Sadducees were a very small minority. The vast majority of first century Jews believed that our bodies have a future. And so when Paul is teaching the same thing, he's not teaching that because he's a Christian. He's always believed it, but he's tying it now to the resurrection of Christ. Does that make sense? He knows that the reason there's going to be a final resurrection is because Jesus was raised from the dead. So, despite the uh, widespread affirmation of the resurrection of the dead among both first century Jews and these earliest Christians, apparently what we gather from this passage is that there were some folks back there in the First Baptist Church of Corinth that just weren't convinced. They're not sure. Maybe they were rejecting it, but at the very least they were questioning this idea. Because if they weren't, Paul wouldn't have any reason to write this, right? He's defending this doctrine to people who are waffling on the question. So there's some folks who are not quite sure about this. Maybe they've rejected it completely. But it's interesting because it seems like these particular doubters are not denying Jesus rose from the dead. What we're going to see as we work through Paul's argument, the folks he's writing to believe it's okay that Jesus came back to life, but they don't think that there's a final resurrection of the dead. And what Paul's going to do is tie these two things together. He's going to say that they're related to each other. In fact, Paul says that if they reject the idea of the final resurrection then that means logically they should also reject the idea of Jesus' resurrection. And that's not good news. That's bad news. So more on that in just a few minutes. So now let's really get into it. If Christ hasn't been raised. So in verses 14 through 19, what we're going to see is that Paul mentions six negative consequences that would be true if the doubters are right and if Christ has not been raised because there's no resurrection of the dead. So the first two of those negative consequences we find in verse 14. Let's read that again together. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Now, this should be really familiar to you because this is the verse that Josh quoted on Sunday. It wasn't the passage he was preaching on, but he referenced this particular verse in his sermon. So, Paul argues that if Christ hasn't been raised, then Paul's preaching and the preaching of all the other apostles is in vain. They're just wasting their ministries. This is the part that Josh referenced on Sunday. Uh, You may remember, he said... What's the point of all this if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead? You know, what's the point of me standing up here and teaching this? What's the point of all of us coming together? We could have slept in today. Why are we wasting our Sundays? That's the sort of argument that Paul is making here. And So Paul says not only is this true of the ministers, he says if Christ hasn't been raised, then the Corinthians' faith is in vain. The pastors are wasting their ministry, And all the other members are wasting their faith. It's not worth it. Why believe? Think about this for a minute. How many Christians and even how many ministers get really excited about good things that aren't the best thing? You know what I'm talking about? Like, how many Christians get really excited about morality? That's a good thing, but it's not the best thing. Or how many Christians get really excited about justice? And I know there's a big debate about social justice. I'm not talking about that. Everybody believes in justice, even if we debate the best way to frame it. Justice is a good thing, but what about the type of Christian that gets excited about justice, which is a good thing, but not the most important thing? Or what about mercy? Ah, they don't fight about that on the news. Mercy is a good thing. It's a good thing to be merciful towards other people. And there are lots of Christians that get really excited about acts of mercy, but maybe not the most important thing. Or what about family values? Man, we live in a wrecked culture, don't we? I don't know about you, but I get excited about family values and wanting to see family values celebrated in the public square. But have you ever met a Christian that gets really excited about family values, but maybe they're not as excited about the most important thing? I mean, the temptation's there. Even among folks who believe the Bible, who love the Lord, love the church, love the lost... Paul says, even if we love good things, even if we care about good stuff, it's wasted preaching and vain faith if we're not focused on the main thing. The main thing, the good news of all that God has done on behalf of sinners in his perfectly obedient life his sacrificial death, and yes, his victorious bodily resurrection. And all those other good things, they really matter because they're the fruit of the main thing. So God forbid that we focus only on the good things and not on the main thing that makes those good things so good. Let me say this as... Bluntly as I can, if Jesus didn't come back to life, if his body decayed in a tomb, just like every one of our bodies will decay in the tomb if Jesus cherries his return. Just like every one of our deceased loved ones' bodies are decaying in the tomb, whatever the tomb looks like for you and your loved ones. If Jesus' body decays in the same way every other human body in history has decayed, if that's true of Jesus, then we're in a whole heap of trouble. Preachers need to get a real job. And we all need to play golf on Sunday mornings. Or watch the news on Sunday morning or go to brunch on Sunday morning, whatever it is that you fantasize about that you wish you could do on Sunday morning sometimes, you just need to do that. If there really was a body that decayed in the tomb just like every other human body has done and will continue to do until the dead in Christ rise. So those first two are in verse 14. Verse 15 gives us the third negative consequence if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. Paul says we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. Here's what Paul's saying. Here's his logic. If there is no bodily resurrection, then Jesus wasn't raised. And if Jesus wasn't raised, then Paul and the apostles have misrepresented God because that's what they've been preaching, right? Their message has been, he is risen. He is risen indeed. And they're not being honest if there's no resurrection. Paul says, you're calling us liars. To put it maybe even a little bit more stark, Paul is saying that if Jesus never rose from the dead, then the apostles are at best ignorant. And they are at worst liars, deceivers, because they're claiming something about Jesus that isn't true. Whenever I read this, I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's famous analogy in Mere Christianity, where he talks about how Jesus is either a a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. You know what I'm talking about? Because uh, you can't go around saying the sort of things that Jesus said and not either be a deceiver or be a little crazy, or it's true. And Paul's not saying exactly the same thing here, but I mean, he's He's saying if if Jesus didn't rise, then we either don't know what we're talking about, we're goofballs, or we're misleading you. We're selling you a bill of goods that isn't true. And remember, lest you think this is no big deal, what happens to false witnesses who misrepresent God? What happens? They get put to death. Right? We find this throughout The Old Testament, Deuteronomy 13, 15, put them to death. So it's not just kind of this idea that Paul's throwing out there like it is with me. If I say something that's false doctrine, I get fired, but you don't stone me. If if Paul misleads, the consequences are death. So this is a really big deal. He says either Jesus came back from the dead or I'm clueless or worse, I'm a false teacher. And if I'm a false teacher, then you folks need to treat me like a false teacher. There's a fourth negative consequence, though. We see this in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is that's similar to your faith is in vain from earlier, and you are still in your sins. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, not only is our faith worthless, we're still in our sins. We're still under the curse of consequences for our sins. We are still headed, headlong, for an eternity of eternal relational separation from God and punishment for our sins. Our future is wrath if Christ has not been raised. Now, let me talk about my experience. You know what happens when we talk about experience, right? It is limited to my experience. This might not be your experience. But in my experience... Primarily, as somebody who for most of my ministry has preached and taught, preached and taught, preached and taught. Listen to that. <laughs> Leah's going to remind me of that for months. <clears throat> as somebody who has primarily preached and taught in, uh, in multiple churches. Uh, rather than serving in, in one church for long seasons. I've, I've only done that a couple of times. I've been in a lot of churches, in a lot of places. And in my experience, Baptists and other Bible-believing Christians love to talk and sing about how Jesus died for our sins. Has that been your experience? Like, we sing a lot about the blood of Jesus. And we sing a lot about how he paid the penalty For our sins. And and we talk a lot about it. And that is a precious truth that we need to celebrate. But in some places, not Taylor's First Baptist Church, because I was here on Sunday, but in some places, I've not seen quite as much excitement about the resurrection unless it was Easter. And in some ways, I get why it's especially exciting at Easter, because that's when we celebrate the resurrection, right? But I've been in churches where you might every single week have a song or two or three that talk about the cross of Christ and, and forgiveness and, and praise God for that, but it might be many weeks that the resurrection's not mentioned. Not because anybody's denying it, not, not by any stretch, not in the type of churches I've been in but they're not always closely tied together. And we need to remember that the resurrection seals the deal of the cross. Does that make sense? If Jesus didn't come back, he's just a martyr. And being a martyr might be noble, but being a martyr does not save anybody. The resurrection vindicates the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It makes effective that penalty for sin that he bore upon himself, that crushing the head of the serpent, that defeating the powers of darkness, proclaiming victory over death. None of that is fully accomplished if Jesus doesn't come back from the dead. If Jesus is still dead, then we are still lost. That's what Paul is saying. I don't know if you've ever asked a question like this, but over the years, let me tell you a favorite question of college and seminary students. When I've taught on theology, Bible, church history, in colleges and seminaries, students love to ask, are there certain doctrines that if you don't believe them, you're not a Christian? Have you ever asked a question like that? Like, is there anything that if you don't believe it, it makes you not a Christian? Now, the reason most of the students are asking that question is because they're going to be pastors and teachers. They want to be sure they get it right. So it's a fair question. And my answer is always, well, it depends. Now, before you think I'm a liberal and try to fire me, let me explain what I mean by that. Do you think it's possible sometimes that people come to faith in Christ and they've not learned about the virgin birth yet? I think that happens a lot. Do you think that people who are really Christians deny the virgin birth? That's a different thing, isn't it? Than just not being aware of it whenever you come to faith in Christ and and you're a baby Christian. And so that's why I say it depends, but... Let me say this, there's at least one doctrine that on some level you've got to know about it and you've got to believe it or you're not really a Christian and it's the resurrection. And that's not my opinion, that's exactly what Paul teaches. There might be others, but there's definitely one and it's this one. That we're talking about tonight. That's the argument that he's making here. We are not Christians because there's no way for us to believe we are saved in the Bible's way of talking about that if we don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. So there's at least one doctrine for sure that you cannot not believe and be a Christian and that's the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a core affirmation of the gospel. If you deny this, if you reject this, then you may use words like Jesus and salvation and forgiveness and things like that. You may have the same vocabulary, but you're working from a different dictionary. It's not the Jesus of scriptures. It's the, it's the Jesus of something else, tradition, imagination, Time Magazine, something else. You have to believe in the resurrection to be a Christian. I think there are probably others. But that one we can say with crystal clarity because of what Paul teaches here in 1 Corinthians 15. There's a fifth negative consequence. We find it in verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now, this is closely related to that last point. Just like there is no hope for living believers if Christ is still dead, so there is no hope for the believing dead if Christ didn't rise from the dead. Does that make sense? Not only is there no hope for us, there's no hope for our loved ones, our godly loved ones, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. Now, I grew up in Southeast Georgia. Have I told you that? I grew up in Southeast Georgia. The, not, now, not the nice beachy part of Georgia, and not the nice northern part of Georgia with the mountains that looks kind of like the upstate. I grew up in the swampy, flat Georgia, down really close to where the gnats bite. <laughs> evidence, Evidence of a fallen world. <laughs> Biting gnats. That's the part of Georgia I grew up in. But Southeast Georgia, much like upstate South Carolina, is in the heart of the Bible Belt. And there's a lot of great things that come with being in the Bible Belt, right? There's a lot of great things that come with being in the Bible Belt. But you know one unintentionally negative thing that comes with being in the Bible Belt sometimes? What I call Southern Fried Churchianity. See, you're laughing. You know what I mean. Southern fried churchianity. People who think that they're Christians because they hold to conservative social values and grandma's buried in the cemetery and they don't drink or chew or date girls that do and they vote for family values candidates and, and, and they live in the South. Southern fried churchianity. It's there. Have you ever noticed at many southern funerals? This is where you can figure out southern fried churchianity. Have you ever noticed at southern funerals how it's often the case that the default assumption is that the dead person went to heaven? No matter what? I don't know about your families. I've got a lot of lost people in my family. Not my my immediate family. But uh, the the further out you get from the nuclear family unit that I was raised in, with a couple of exceptions, the further away you get from biblical Christianity. But almost all of them were southern fried churchianity folks rather than outright pagans. And so every time a uh, rascal of an uncle died... Everybody, oh, Uncle Charles, you know he's with the Lord now. And I can remember as a teenager thinking, Uncle Charles didn't want to be with the Lord? That's not where he is, but that was kind of the default. And that's that's not just my southern fried churchianity extended family. You find that all over the South. Just kind of the assumption that good, decent people, good, decent people, they, you know, they, he went to heaven. She went to heaven. We hear that sort of thing. That's kind of the default with cultural Christianity, like we find in some places. But notice, that is not Paul's default in this verse, is it? Paul's default is the other way. Instead of assuming that most people who die probably go to a better place. Paul assumes that most dead folks are also still spiritually dead and without hope in eternity. And he, what he says is, you're not saved unless you prove otherwise. You're lost unless you turn from your sins and trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You see the difference, right? Like, we don't start from a position of we're in pretty good shape, but maybe something goes wrong. We start from a position of we're in a whole heap of trouble unless our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's what Paul teaches. But what he says is that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Not just your pagan uncle. Not just your southern fried churchianity neighbor. But your godly grandmother is doomed. Your child who was sold out for Jesus before he died too young. Your beloved spouse who faithfully served the body of Christ your dear friend who was a soul winner, every one of them eternally doomed if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That's what Paul is saying here. Leah is sitting in the back, still smarting over me saying, teached. Both of Leah's parents have died in the last couple of decades. Her uh, her father died whenever we were in our mid-20s. It's a very tragic, sudden, kind of defining moment in our young marriage. Her mother died three or four years ago, three years ago. They were a very godly couple who for decades were involved in ministry. He was a pastor, worked for the North American Mission Board at the end of his life. She was a godly lady, loved being hospitable to people in the church. Both of them invested in young people, not just formal youth group. They also had kind of like extra youth group at their house where they took in strays and taught them the Bible and provided a safe place for them. Just a, a, a godly, remarkable couple. But if Jesus Christ wasn't raised from the dead they're still dead in their sins and eternally separated from the Father. And all that talk about heaven and the new heavens and the new earth that was said at their funerals, that is just a bunch of fluff to comfort a grieving family and friends if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. In verse 19, we see the final negative consequence. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says that if Christ is not raised, then our faith is only meaningful for this life. And if that's the case if it's just your thing that's kind of getting you through this life, then we're pitiful. And not just pitiful, the most pitiful of people, if that's all it is. By the way, this is exactly what many non-Christians actually believe about us, especially those who are hostile actively hostile towards things of the faith. Some of you have heard this before. Uh, Karl Marx called religion the opiate of the masses. You know what he means? He says, he's literally saying that religion, by which he meant mostly Judaism and Christianity for him, uh, they're just a drug to soothe us in a harsh world. Marx was actually being kind of nice. Ted Turner, remember Ted? You know, I love Ted because I'm an Atlanta Braves fan. But Ted is not a follower of King Jesus. Ted just said, Christianity is a religion for losers. That's it, that's the quote. Christianity is a religion for losers. This is what a lot of people who are hostile actively towards Christianity already believe about us, that we're pitiful because we believe this thing that isn't true and it's kind of like our crutch to get us through life. But make no mistake about it. If Jesus didn't come back to life, then Ted Turner is right. He may be rude about it, But if Jesus is still dead, then the points go to Ted. And we are losers. And not just in the way that Ted means, it's an eternal loss, isn't it? Because we're still dead in our sins, and we're not forgiven, and we have no hope. All of this is bad news. But here's the good news. That's all hypothetical bad news. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead. But Paul doesn't end with an if. Paul ends with a but. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Despite the doubts of the Corinthians, Paul says Christ has been raised from the dead. There is no body rotting in a tomb in Jerusalem because Jesus really did come back to life after being dead for parts of three days. And if that's not good news enough, Paul reminds us, that Jesus is the first fruits of all those who die in the faith. He's the first fruits. His resurrection points to and guarantees our resurrection. That final resurrection will happen because Jesus' heart started beating again. And because he sat up and he unwrapped those burial clothes and that stone rolled away and he walked out and showed himself to those ladies and to those disciples and to other followers and he ascended into heaven where he intercedes for us now. And one day he will return and finish fixing everything that's been broken by Adam and Eve's sin, and by our sin, because he is the king. This precious promise turns all those negative consequences on their heads. Christian preaching is not in vain. It is the means that God uses to save his people. Our faith in Christ is not in vain. It's the means through which Christ's saving work is applied to our lives the apostles correctly testified to God's raising of Christ from the dead. God really did it, and we know about it because of their testimony in the New Testament. Living believers are not still dead in their sins. Our sins have been washed away by the blood of the Lamb. Dead believers have not perished. They are present with the Father absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. And one day their souls will be reunited with their bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. And Christians are not a pitiful people. Christians are the new humanity under the reign of the new Adam. And we will one day live in a new heavens and a new earth. And that is the end game. That is our final destiny. One day we will live in a place where sin and sickness and sorrow and death will remain a part of our testimony but will no longer be a part of our reality. And that's the grace of God and it was secured not just in the perfect life and not just in the atoning death but in the victorious glorious, sin-shattering, world-changing resurrection of King Jesus. So as we celebrated this past Sunday, Jesus has risen from the dead. And because of that resurrection, we have hope, not just worldly hope. We have real hope of what's to come. So may we be a community of disciples who celebrates the resurrection and lives in light of the resurrection because Jesus Christ is the risen King and that changes everything. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this promise that Jesus is the risen King And we don't have to say what if Christ has not been raised because your word makes clear Jesus is alive. And Lord, we are grateful for all that that means for us. Father, we pray that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to be resurrection people who live in light of all All that has been accomplished on our behalf through the resurrection of Christ. And may we boldly, lovingly, courageously, constantly hold out resurrection hope to this community that needs to hear there is a risen King. And we pray these things in the name of our risen Lord, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.